0: All right, so got your finger in Ephesians chapter five, verse 15. It says this: "Look then carefully how you walk. Look then carefully, how you walk." And walking is not a complicated thing, is it? Mark Twain said this. He's famous for it. "Golf is a good walk spoiled." Another saying that I have heard before. I won't say in what context. Generally, you say this about somebody who annoys you. If they're sitting by you, don't look now. Why don't you go take a long walk off a short pier? You ever heard that one? You see how it works? If you take a long walk, then you fall off the end of the pier. Okay. I don't know if I have to explain it or not. A walk. What what does it mean to walk here in this passage, Ephesians 5.15? What it means is it's our manner of, the manner in which we live the manner in which we live our lives, especially as it relates to the Lord. And what he wants us to do in this passage is look at the manner in which we live, or our walk in the Lord, and he draws three contrasts. There are three contrasts, one in verses 15 and 16, one in verse 17, and one that bears out for the rest of the passage. And here's what they are. I'm going to give you all the answers at the beginning. The first contrast he's going to give us about our walk is the contrast between walking as one who is wise or one who is unwise. Two options in our walking. Walk as one who is wise or one who is unwise. The the second contrast is this. Walking as one who is foolish or one who is understanding. One who is foolish or one who is understanding. And finally, the last contrast is this, and it may sound strange, but it's a contrast he makes nonetheless. He contrasts between walking Drunken, or walking filled with the Spirit. So let's look at each of those in turn, and that'll be what our time will be taken up with this morning. Verses 15 and 16, we want to understand a pleasing walk. Know the best way. Contrasting what it means to walk wise versus unwise. A pleasing walk. Know the best way. Many years ago, I don't know how many years ago, I read it in a paper, uh, driver in india he had to drive his truck across the railroad tracks this is somewhere in india i don't know it's a big country from what i understand a lot of people and the way it worked there was a very very rural kind of area what you were supposed to do to cross the train tracks is you're supposed to drive into the village where there's a manned train crossing and he'll give you the signal to cross and it's also at the location that the roads are designed that you can cross safely so the truck driver really has two options drive all the way into town to cross the train or do what most of us guys would do. Why can't I just get a good acceleration going, cross right here? And that's what he did. So he tried to cross the train tracks. He didn't want to take, go all the way into town. He wanted to just get across the train tracks. Of course, his truck got stuck. The train hit his truck and destroyed it. And a few people even lost their lives. Now, is there anything wrong with him crossing the train tracks in the middle of nowhere? There's no rules against it. There really is nothing wrong with it. There's nothing it violates. It's a It's the middle of nowhere in India. I don't know if there are rules out there. But was it the best way? Well, certainly looking back now that his truck was a ball of fire, it certainly wasn't the best way. And this is the difference between living wise and unwise. It's not necessarily a difference between right and wrong. It's the difference between, well, what's good and then what's really the best thing to do. And the Bible calls us in Ephesians 5.15 to look carefully how we walk and to be wise about it, to think about what's the best way to walk with the Lord. And what he wants us to do is to examine our lives and determine, is our life a demonstration of wisdom in living the Lord, or is it a demonstration of settling for what's just okay? He's calling us to examine our own heart, examine the pattern of our life, and actually with our mind, guided by the Scripture, discern what pattern should my life hold given that the Lord has saved me? What's the best way to live? What's the, the best pattern of life given the fact that God has redeemed me? It says this over in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Well, what does that mean? What's the fear of the Lord mean? We're supposed to roll up in the fetal position under our desk? Well, maybe sometimes. But fear of the Lord says this, God is God, and I am not. It's not complicated theological position. God is God, I'm not God. Everything He wants, He gets. Everything I want that is the same as Him, I get. Now see, now you got irritated with me, I can tell just by your expression. Why doesn't God want want what I want? I don't know. I just mentioned, I'm not God. You'll have to take it up with Him. The fear of the Lord is very, very simple. He is God. I am not. He gets whatever He wants. Now, the upside is, whatever He wants is really, really good, but in our brokenness and fallenness, it's difficult for us to see. That's why the writer in Proverbs chapter 1 draws such a stark contrast between wisdom and the enticing siren call of sin. He says, sin is enticing. It will call you out to it. And wisdom understands, despite the enticement, wisdom says, no, I will follow God's ways. So the beginning of wisdom is to understand if I'm going to pattern my life as one who seeks the Lord, pattern my life wisely, my life is going to be a pattern in such a way that it recognizes God is God and He's in charge of everything. And that's the beginning of wisdom, to seek God's way. So we're not just simply talking here about how to live smartly, how to live the best life I can live, how to manage my money and my affairs and these sorts of things. It's to pattern my life in such a way that I recognize the Lord is the Lord of all things, including every moment of my life. Here's another way we might define wisdom. It says this, I want to intentionally craft a pattern in my life that says the greatest return I can gain in my life is a kingdom return. Should I repeat that? Is that a long sentence? A minute, Todd. I think I'll go for it again. Okay. Wisdom. I'm going to intentionally craft my life in such a way that I recognize the greatest return I can get in my life is a return from the kingdom of God, nothing else. Matthew twenty five, fourteen. You can turn there with me if you like. Matthew twenty five fourteen. Jesus tells a parable exactly about this. This is what he says. About the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it is going to be like a man who is going on a journey, and he called his servants, and he entrusted to them his property. To one servant he gave five talents. Now, talents is a, a form of money. We're not talking about one, you know, five talents, juggling, unicycle. It's not what he's talking about. I don't know why the talents are always circus acts in my mind. I <laughs> need to see a therapist. It goes without saying. Um, he gave five talents. One, uh, these are. This is money. Five talents to one, to another he gave two talents, and to the last one he gave one. And he he says why he did this. He says he gave each one. According to his ability. So each of these had different skill levels, and he gave each one in accordance with the ability they had. And this says he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with him, and he made five talents more. Stop there. Are you still with me? Then he called the master and asked what to deal in. Went to the garage sale, bought a bunch of old stuff, went on eBay, doubled it of money. I, that's what I assume he did. I don't know. That's how you do it, right? Buy stuff at people's garage sales, and then you sell it on eBay. So did he ask the master how to, how to, what to buy and what to sell? No, where's the master? master's on a journey. What was the master expecting him to, to make his decisions based on? The Bible tells us. Based on his what? His ability. He gave him five talents because he had five talents were the skills, and he said, use your skills. Get after it. Use your brain, use your effort, use whatever you got, and I want you to figure out how to take what I have given you and make a great return on it. And that's exactly what he did. He doubled his money. So also the one that had two talents made two talents more. Verse 18 of Matthew 25, He who had received the one talent went and dug in in the ground, and he hid his master's money. What, What skill did he use? Well, ditch digging, I guess. He used the skill of taking dirt out of a hole. Now, he had been given the talent to use his abilities, right? But instead of using his abilities, when the master got back, he threw the master under the bus and said, oh, you're a harsh master, so I didn't want to take a risk with it. The the two uh, servants who had received a return, having used their minds and their efforts and their abilities... They received great reward, the joy of their master, because they had um, walked in a way that says, the greatest return I can receive right now is the joy of my master when he returns. They acted wisely. Wisdom, as we say, I want to I have a pleasing walk for the Lord, is to know the best way, and that's to use our minds and our, our gifts and our abilities to examine each moment of our life and say, How can I create in my life a pattern that recognizes the greatest return I can receive in this life is a return that comes from the kingdom of God? This means we might recognize our weaknesses. We might recognize our strengths. Look at Ephesians 5.16 with me. Ephesians 5.16 says this. Make best use of the time because the days are evil. So I want to examine my heart and my mind and my life, and I want to examine my, my weaknesses and my strengths and say, well, what are those areas where I am exposed, and how do I limit that exposure, and what are the areas I am gifted, and how do I maximize the return on my giftedness? Maybe there's an area in your life of sin that you struggle with, and you've never had victory over it. So you recognize that area of weakness, and you get with your friends, and and you get together and say, I need prayer and help and support and accountability in this area, and make sure that the boundaries are strong for me in this area. But Maybe there's an area of your life where you have great giftedness and confidence and competence. And you say to your friends, I need you to hold me accountable. I'm spending all my time doing other things when I could be using these gifts to generate a return for the kingdom of the Lord. How can I look at my life and say, how do I generate the greatest return? Wisdom is not always knowing what is wrong that I'm supposed to say no to. The babyest of Christians knows how to say no to sin, whether or not they do or don't. Wise Christians who are seasoned in learning to pattern their life after the kingdom of God aren't merely saying no to sin. They're learning to say no to the good things that take them from the best things. There are many good things this life and this world has to offer. And servants of the king say, I'm going to hold out for the best thing, which is a return on the kingdom of God, not merely a return in this life. Maybe you could imagine yourself hiring an employee. If you're here and you're a business owner, you don't have to imagine it. Already you've started sweating as you think about hiring employees. So you're interviewing said employee. Finish the interview, they seem like a good candidate, and you say to them that final question, which is an important question, do you have any questions for me? And they say, what time does the workday start? Well, it starts at 8 o'clock. Okay, so I can get here at 8? Well, I mean, it starts at 8. You might want to get here early and get settled, get a cup of coffee made. And, of course, if there's stuff left over from the day before, you might want to sneak in a little early to make sure, make sure things are wrapped up. And Okay, so I can come in at 8? Okay, all right. So what time is the work day over? Well, I mean, it's, it's over at 5 o'clock. We work 8 to 5. And so, you know, sometimes it gets a little busy. I might have to work till 6, 6.30. Oh, okay, so we're done at 5. I can leave at 5? Okay. When's lunch? Well, lunch is at noon. You get a half an hour. You can eat in the break rooms. Okay, so I'll get a half an hour lunch. Well, yeah, you get a half an hour. But, you know, we like to be flexible in case something comes up. So, okay, so I get a half an hour lunch at noon. When are my uh, breaks? You get my drift here? Finally, I said, do you want to work or do you not want to work? What's the, what's the, le- what's the least amount I can do? What's the, what's the minimum amount I can do so that I can keep this thing going? How often is that really what we're asking God? So God, I mean, so what's the minimum I got, amount I got to do to sort of have the Christian label on my life? Is that like five minutes of prayer in the morning, five days a week, four days a week? Is that a little Bible reading here and there? Is that bumper sticker? Christians aren't perfect, they're forgiven. Don't get that bumper sticker if you have. Okay, I, I should say, I don't have a fish on my car for obvious reasons. Anyway. Wisdom doesn't merely say, okay, I just want to make sure I, I say no to all the right things. I want to make sure I say no to all the naughty things. That's not wisdom. Wisdom says, what's a pleasing walk to the Lord? What's the best way to walk with the Lord? How do I look at my life and create in my life habits that will generate the greatest return for the kingdom? One day we're all punching out of this place. And we'll discover at that time whether or not our life was framed around the idea of generating a kingdom return... Or generating our own return. You can look at every area of your life, from your parenting to your marriage to your a workplace to your leisure, and say, Well, I don't want to, I don't have to stop doing these things, but I want to do these things in such a way that they generate a kingdom return. A pleasing walk is to look wisely at our life and know the best way to generate the greatest return, creating habits in our life where we know the Lord better and know how to walk with Him better. A pleasing walk, know the best way. Look at verse 17 with me. A pleasing walk, know the right way. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, we're contrasting here foolishness in understanding. It's not just about knowing the best way to walk, but it's also knowing the right way. I don't know if you know this, but there is competitive walking in the Olympics. Has anybody ever seen that? If you notice, no, raise your hand. I want to know if I'm talking to anybody ever seen competitive walking. And you're going, competitive walking? Okay. Yeah, it's a thing. And they walk weird. Have you ever seen that they walk really odd? And I was looking this up, and I discovered why. There's rules in how you're supposed to walk in competitive walking. Um, I'm sorry. I mean, I couldn't do it. i got to be honest. But here's the rules. I mean, two basic rules. Uh, One foot has to be on the ground at all times. You can never have both feet off the ground because then you're running. One foot has to have contact with the ground at all times. And secondly, your leading leg has to remain straight as an arrow until it passes under your body. Once it passes under your body, then you can bend your knee. And that's why they walk so so funny. And what happens is as you're walking competitively against other competitive walkers. I've never walked the mall. Some of you guys walk the mall. Is that what it's like in there? A lot, of, a lot of trash talking going on in there? Okay. All right. Um There's a judge, and what he does is he will decide whether or not you are meeting the rules. If your leg is staying straight, if both feet are staying on the ground, and you can receive penalties, and if it's bad enough, they'll disqualify you from the race. You say, well, I walked the course. I I came in first. What's the problem? He said, well, you walked, but you didn't walk the right way. So he says here in verse 17, Therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what God's will and purpose is in my life in particular. Here's a way that foolishness is born out in our life. We tend to think that God's opinions are limited to the issues of morals. What are the right things to do and what are the wrong things to do? That the only thing God is interested in the world around us is who's being good and who's being naughty. The Bible says, no, God is keenly interested and has an opinion about the minute details of each of our lives. Look with me at James chapter 4 verse 13. This is what the Bible says. James chapter 4 beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Anything wrong there? Nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Fantastic. But there's a problem. The the author discerns in the heart of these individuals, and he says this, listen, verse 14, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, and when he means say, our heart should be revealed by our words, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. It's foolish to think that God doesn't have an opinion on my decisions I need to make today and on the decisions you need to make today and the manner in which you are going to live and and conduct your life. He has an opinion on the best way to go that would reflect uh, someone who is in the kingdom of God. And his suggestion is our hearts should be set... On discerning what his purpose and his will is. Anybody ever wondered what God's will is in a particular decision? No one? I mean the rest of the sermon's kind of sunk if you're not. Okay. Okay, just okay, you'll you'll pretend. Okay, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We know how to discern God's will. It's very, very simple. Just nearly impossible. Very simple, just impossible. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is as good and acceptable and perfect will the way in which we discern the will of God is the spirit of God works in our heart in such a way that he transforms our heart and mind to be Christ like And the more we become like Christ in our heart and our life and our minds, the more we can discern in a moment-by-moment basis what God's will is right now in this. It's foolish to think God is only casually disinterested in the details of our life. God is keenly disinterested in the details of our life. And he wants us to be transformed into his image to such a degree that even as we make mundane decisions about our finances and where we'll live and where will work, and uh, how we might school our children, and what our future might hold, and we set goals. He, he says, I want to be a part of all those. In order for me to be a part of all that, your mind needs to be like Christ. Put it another way. You say this, as we all do, I want to know what God's will is. I'm going to make a statement. I'm, I'm going to guarantee this 100%. If your mind is not like Christ, and God were to tell you His will, you would tell Him no. God is not looking to provide us His will, which is nearly identical to ours, except just a little bit better. He says, in order for us to receive and even accept what He's up to, our mind is gonna be like Christ and transformed like Christ. God desires in our life that we would seek out earnestly, knowing His will. And in fact, that we would abandon everything in our life that makes us less like Jesus so that we can understand His, his will more clearly and more perfectly. Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells, tells a parable on this one, and we've mentioned it here before. You're familiar with it. A guy has some land, and he plants his land, and he has a fantastic return on his planting. In fact, he has such a return on his planting, he has nowhere to store his crops, his barns are too small. And he says this to himself, I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store my grain and goods. No problem with that. Nothing wrong with bigger barns. But this is where he runs into a problem. Verse 19 of Luke 12. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's where his heart went from wisdom to foolishness. Instead of going to God with thanksgiving for his bounty, he decided in his arrogance he no longer needed the Lord. At some point, every one of us will be on that day, on the threshold where our soul will be demanded, and we will stand before the Lord, and what we want to know is on that day that we will receive a return for the kingdom of God because that's the only thing that's going to go from here to the next place. A pleasing walk, know the best way, and a pleasing walk, know the right way. As it turns out, this is very, very difficult to do. Anybody agree? Very, very difficult to do. Good, got a couple of hands. I'm going to go with impossible. So as it turns out, we get help. Look with me at verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A pleasing walk, have the best companion, a pleasing walk, have the best companion a contrast here between being filled with the spirit and drunkenness they did an interview of four year old girls kind of took a poll four year old little girls and they said if you could have your dad change anything what would you change about your dad one of the top answers, maybe I told you this before but if I, I have pretend like it's new you know what one of the top answers were God, I wish he would walk slower. I and mean, once you start thinking about it, oh man, that's really good advice. I mean, dads, I mean, how many times you walk into the store, you got your kid by the hand, and a dad going to the store, well, this isn't universally true, but maybe 90%. What's the job at the store? Go get your thing and get out of that store. <laughs> right? We're not here to shop. Okay. And, and the poor kid... You know, we we're, we're got our normal pace. Remember, kids, they've got great RPM, just not very good top speed. <laughs> Their legs are spinning around. And we're just doing a casual pace, and we can't, come on, hurry up. Looking at the butterflies and the flowers. It's <laughs> we have somebody who walks with us at our pace. He walks with us. That's what the Holy Spirit, the helper, the, the come alongsider he walks right with us, right at our pace, He's walking right next to us and walking, in fact, right in us. And he's perfectly willing at our pace where we are in this moment to give us everything we need, everything we need to get through this moment, everything, all the power and strength we need to live in obedience, all the strength we need to live in faithfulness, even all the power and strength we need just to endure the difficulty. But we don't have any control over the Spirit because He is God and I am not. But I can pick up a bottle, I can empty that sucker, and in about 10 minutes, I, who's in charge of how I feel? I don't have to wait for some Holy Spirit. And that's what he's contrasting here. He's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is going to walk with you at your pace, don't abandon the presence of God with you in this very moment for that temporary pleasure that comes from drunkenness, which we all know, know what that leads to a, a compromising of our decision making ability. Drunkenness leads to debauchery. He says, don't, don't go there. In fact, instead, be filled by the Spirit, which leads to Christ likeness. The Spirit is willing to walk with us at our pace and give us all we need. And he calls us here to be, excuse me, filled by the Spirit. And what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Well, look over with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 9, or listen along as I read it. We discover something about it in Romans 8. It says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. Christians, you're not in the flesh primarily, but you're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. What he's saying is if you're a believer, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Uh, The Spirit of God does not dwell in you. It means you're not a believer. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what does he call the Holy Spirit there? Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. He goes on in verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies. Okay, just a minute. You ever had one of those days where at the end of the day, you're like, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know. I don't think I can hack it. Holy Spirit says, no, I got this. Oh, Really? What have you ever done? I know you would never talk to God that way out loud with other people around. He says, oh, I just raised God from the dead. What do you got? I mean, I mean it's unbelievable to think of this. We have residing in us the Spirit of Christ. What does he do for on his free times? Raise God from the dead. I've always said this. It's very hard to raise somebody from the dead. Try raising God from the dead. And the Holy Spirit says the, the Spirit he who raised Christ from the dead. This is supposed to blow our minds. He who raised Christ from the dead lives in us, and we don't know if we can make it through this afternoon. And the Spirit says, I know you're not going to like it. I know it's not easy. Suffering is difficult, but I've got you. I can handle this. We can get through this. Walk with me through this. He says this, the Christ, uh, he, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. To be filled by the Spirit is to live in obedience and have the Holy Spirit conform us to be like Christ. It's to be filled with Christ himself. Christ dwells in us and gives life to our bodies. What's the other option? To not live in obedience and not be filled with the Spirit and not be conformed to the image of Christ. This is what it said in Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futilities of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. He's saying this, don't go back to your old way of living. Have the Spirit fill you that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. Our old way of life is darkened. Our old way of life is hardened to the Lord. Our old way of life is callous and cynical and skeptical. But now we have Christ. The Spirit living in us. And we've, we've learned a better way. We've learned Christ's way. I know you're asking this, and if you're not, I'll give you the question. What does it look like to live filled by the Spirit? Anybody asking that question? Go like this so that way I know you Okay, filled by the Spirit. Here we go. It's the rest of the passage. Look with me at Ephesians 5, 17 and following. I'm going to read it again. The way the passage is written... The verse 19, 20, and 21 are basically a way of saying, here's what it looks like to live filled by the Spirit. Here it goes. Address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always for everything to God and Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's just touch on a couple of these things, what it means to have the best companion and be filled by the Spirit. First of all, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when you come to church, you're supposed to sing to each other. Seems a little weird. It means to do what we do every single Sunday. We get together and we sing songs and we make melody in our heart to the Lord. He, he lists three kinds of, of songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. They're essentially synonyms with each other. Basically, he's saying... A, religious songs that bring to light the truth of who God is and what He has done. There's nothing in here about style of song at all. The only one of these that sort of speaks to musical style is psalms. Wherever that particular word is used, it always refers to songs that are accompanied by stringed instruments. Other than that, the rest of them are merely different ways of saying uh, poems that have been put to music, psalms, which are poems that have been put to music accompanied by stringed instruments. Psalms are a spiritual, or I should say hymns, spiritual poems put to music and spiritual songs. A couple of things on music. Are you ready? Get your email out. Just start now. <laughs> we all love certain songs. A great author, Gordon McDonald, said this. Listen, a guy who gets saved... In what are those, what are those dugout things called? Foxhole. Guy gets saved in a foxhole because they're all going to die. They happen to survive the battle. They go to a chapel service. He commits his life to the Lord having survived the battle, and they sing How Great Thou Art. Will there ever be a song in the history of that guy's life as good as How Great Thou Art? Never. There just never will be. There will never be another song written. Matt Redman could knock his socks off. Not going to do it. Some of you go, who's Matt Redman? He writes songs. Okay. Um, all of our songs were at some point the new song that the people who don't know that song don't like. Our oldest hymns were written by Luther. Well, that's pretty old, right? 600 years old. Church history is 2,000 years. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying a mighty fortress is our God is not a great song. It's a great hymn. I'm just saying a hymn is not a hymn because we've been singing it forever. None of the songs you have ever sang in church have been sung forever. 90% of the songs we have sung in church have only been sung in the last 90 years or so. In church history, what do we call that? Little babies. It's young. The church has been going for 2,000 years. What he's calling us to do is not to understand different types of music that make our hearts move. He's saying, "I want you to have hearts moved that make music." When you get in the car, do you turn on the music? Anybody turn on the music? some of your talk radio guys? You turn on, okay, that's fine. You turn on the music, and why do you turn on a certain kind of music in your car? Because it's the music you want to listen to. Yeah, turn on country music is on, so you hit the next button. just lost more than <laughs> half the congregation. See, we, why? The, they're playing music. They want to play music I want to hear so that I'll keep listening. And the kids are saying, who listens to the radio anymore? You don't, you, what do you play on your iPod? You don't hit mom's mix. <laughs> right? You, you, you've got a playlist that's your music. I'm going to let you in on a secret, and I don't mean to be sarcastic, a little sarcastic. Church is not your playlist. This is not put together that you might sing the songs you want to sing. We're the radio. Who's the listener? God's the listener. And what's he listening to? Is he listening to our hearts? Yes. Is he listening to our voices? Marginally so. He's concerned on what's going on in our heart. He said, well, it'd be a whole lot easier to sing with my heart if we sang songs I liked. You're laughing because it's true, right? (laughs) Consider Job. The devil accused Job of worshiping God. Why? Because he got everything he ever wanted. And then God takes everything from Job. Let's be very clear. In Job, it says Satan didn't take it. God says, you incited me against Job. God took everything from Job. And then what does God say? Consider Job... Who worships me even though he has nothing? Look at the heart of God. I'm just gonna ask you a question and you consider the answer in your own heart. Is God most glorified that you, th- you sing from your heart, full throated and enthusiastically, a song you love? Or does it bring more glory to God that you do that same thing on a song you don't like? Just let you think about it. God's concerned with our heart. And you say, well, that's hard. There are some songs that really, really irritate me. I can't think of any, but maybe you've got one. So here, and if you can't sing it, that's fine. But here, let me just give you this idea. If you see somebody, just look around you when that song is being played, and you look around, and you see somebody that appears to be enjoying that song, pray for them. Pray that God would use that song that clearly is working in their heart, that their heart would be filled with the joy of the Lord. And that way you can seek them another thing to keep in mind here he's saying sing songs again just call using the scripture to inform us what does this mean sing let it go it doesn't matter if it sounds good sing out men i'm going to talk to the men because women tend to sing more i think guys we just got to sing just let it go jesus has saved you from hell you can, you can share with us your horrible, horrible voice. We will enjoy the heck out of it. We've got to, this is, your heart is connected to your body in this way. When we sing to the Lord and let it go and just don't worry about it and say, I love the Lord and I'm going to let my voice go, your heart's going to be drawn into it. If you wait for your heart to be moved, you're never going to sing. The Bible here calls us to sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart. that God might be glorified. Not that we might be lifted up, but in the moment we might have that joy of the Lord moving in us. But the, the whole goal of that thing is to lift up the Lord that he might enjoy the worship of our heart. Secondly, what else does it look like to be filled by this spirit besides worshiping with our heart? Give thanks always. Having a heart of gratitude, good or bad, that what Christ is doing in my life is for my good. For the blessings, thank the Lord that he has poured out his rich Blessing is on us. And those things in your life that are sufferings and difficulty and challenge, pray and ask God to intervene, but also thank the Lord that He is good even in the midst of difficulty. Finally, look at verse 21, the last way in which we are filled by the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus said it this way. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to serve, excuse me, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to be top dog in the church? Well, Jesus gets that job. So how about second? Dive to the bottom. You want to be the greatest in the body of Christ. He tells you how. He's not being funny. Whoever would be great among you should be the greatest what? servant. It's very very simple. Who can do the worst job fastest? Who can volunteer quickest for the thing nobody else wants to do? Who can look for the needs of others ahead of their own? Who would who would be great among you be a servant. Romans 12:10 says this. That church is a competition. Do you know that church is competition? I got to find it. Romans twelve ten. I can't find it. Hold on. It's Romans eight. That's why somebody moved the verse. It used to be in Romans twelve, but they moved it in the updated version. <laughs> <laughs> the love of Pete. I'm going to find it. I am stubborn on this. There it is. It is Romans 12.10. I knew it. I should have gone with my gut. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here, listen to this one. This is where the competition comes in. Outdo one another in showing honor. One writer put it this way. If the, if the if body of Christ could do this one thing, unity would never be a problem again in the body of Christ. He did not say, Outdo one another in showing honor to the honorable. That, notice he doesn't say that. Outdo one another in showing honor. Honor. How can you compete? how How do I bestow honor on someone and affirm them and lift them up? John the Baptist said it this way. He must increase, I must decrease. That is to say, I want Christ to increase in others. Even when it means that I must decrease and become less. And be less significant and less important even in my own eyes. A pleasing walk. Know the best way. In wisdom, looking at the pattern of our life and saying, how do I structure my life so that it brings the greatest kingdom return? A pleasing walk. Know the right way. Know what God's will is. Seeking His purpose, even in the mundane, mundane details of this life. And finally, a pleasing walk. Have the best companion. Be filled by the Spirit. That is, be like Christ, especially as I humble myself to serve others in the body of Christ.